Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Matthew 1, 18-25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive, or will conceive, and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is a a simple telling of Joseph's uh, encounter, the spiritual encounter that he had uh, in order to to receive Mary and welcome her and to welcome Jesus. I want to talk uh, this morning a little bit about heroes, uh, a hero. In the past, a hero was somebody who did something great that benefited others, like fighting courageously in battle or braving the unknown to pioneer a better way of life. That was the kind of people that in the past we looked to as heroes. They, they sacrificed, and their sacrifices were often costly, and their achievements helped other people. I think today uh, we have traded in heroes for celebrities in our culture today. And I was thinking of a line from a song, uh, we, th- did they get us to trade our heroes for ghosts? And I think in many ways we have, that there's this vacuous thing that stands in the place of heroes. Celebrities are, uh, are good at those things that we celebrate, okay? You see the connection there, celebrity, celebrate? Uh, celebrities are good at the things that we celebrate, and both come from the same root word, meaning that which is honored. So when we celebrate a holiday, we're honoring something. We're, we're recognizing something again. And when we look to our celebrities, we're, we're honoring them for some kind of achievement. Okay, uh, And probably when you think about that, it's a little sad, isn't it? <laughs> you think about what, what celebrities all do. I, I read somewhere several years ago that Hollywood hosts 300 award dinners throughout the year for themselves. And I thought, oh, that's, that's sad. I was trying to think of my earliest heroes, and I think I first looked up to my older brother, uh, Mark, and then it was a pro baseball player, and then it was a pro football player, and I wanted to be like them. My brother hadn't done anything except be born several years before me, at that point in life anyway. He's done things since then. Um, But I realize uh, now that the athletes that I idolized were, were spoiled and arrogant. Okay, and that may not be true of every athlete, but apparently the ones that, that I look up to were, they were really good at one thing in life, hitting a baseball or being able to throw a football or something like that. And um, they were not really good at some of the other things. In fact, I'm pretty sure that their personal lives were wrecks uh, 
and they couldn't even help themselves, why would I look up to them as a hero? I wouldn't call them heroes. But after I committed my life to Christ, my view of that changed, and I started to see heroes in a different way. And we've made them heroes, those celebrities' heroes, by giving them a stage and an audience and a big salary, and we've made them. Without us, um, they're just ordinary people. Do you know that? Celebrities are just ordinary people without us. But heroes emerge whether they have an audience or not. And that, there's something that's a difference there. Um, and if that sounds a little harsh, maybe it's because I've started to see celebrities in light of true heroes. And that shows something that we, we see as different. Who we celebrate really matters. That's a first point that I'd like to really emphasize here, that who we celebrate matters. Who you celebrate says something about you. I'd like you to think about that. If we're lifting up and celebrating people who um, excel in the world or are good at things that are not pleasing to God or promote lifestyles that are not pleasing to God, then we should really consider what that says about us because I think it says that we value maybe something about them and we, we've lifted them up for the wrong kinds of reasons. And It's okay to enjoy uh, I think it's okay to enjoy watching baseball and football. I, I like doing that, and I like to see people do things that I can only dream of doing athletically. You know what I mean? I never, I never could jump and dunk a basketball without help from a chair or a trampoline or something like that. Okay, so uh, anybody that can do that, especially if they're shorter than me, uh, that's amazing, and I like seeing that. But does that make them a hero? No, it doesn't make them a hero. So. Who we celebrate matters. What really matters in a hero, if you're looking for one, I think three things uh, begin to emerge here. The first one is that they do things that really matter. They do things that really matter. And, and that's kind of a vague term. Like what matters to some people may not matter to others. But maybe if we define it by what matters eternally or what matters to God or what really matters to people in terms of the good, then we can understand a little bit more about what matters. And what really matters is what matters the longest. Are you with me? Like, there's going to be some things that we concern ourselves with this in, in this life that when we get to be with Jesus, we're not going to care about. Right? And maybe they're major headaches right now, but we're not going to care about those later on. Like, have you ever noticed when I was a kid, I just thought, man, if my team could win the Super Bowl, and they never could that it would be really glorious and like like the kingdom would come down if that happened. And then eventually they did win. And you know what happened? About three days later, everybody forgot about it and started talking about other things. You know what I mean? That's sad if you're banking your whole life on that. There are some people that put their whole life, they're banking their whole lives upon sports. And I just, I, this is kind of a side note, but I think about how sad it is for those premier athletes that once they start to lose their step and they're forced out of their industry, how sad it is. Like somebody said one time that Elvis was addicted to fame, and when his fame started to recede, then he had to look for other things. And I think that there's some sadness to all of that because we don't, we don't really get our significance from other people. You know that crowds are fickle. And you're here one week, and you're, you're in one week, and you're out the next, and how sad it is for them, but how sad it is, too, for us who pattern our lives after things like that. And so we need real heroes. The second thing about 
a hero is, what makes, what really matters is a hero is uh, they do other things for other people. They do things for other people. They're selfless in their uh, in their workings. And so sometimes the things that, that don't get the big salaries are really heroic. Are you with me? Like people who work and take care of people in medicine, that they're, they're concerned about others and they care for them. Um, I found out when Janie had her surgeries, I'm not a natural nurse. You know what I mean? Okay, and I don't want you to think less of me, but I'm being honest with you here that that doesn't come naturally to me. For other people, it comes natural. Like, they know the next thing to do, and they know where to show tenderness and where to show firmness. Like, no, you're not getting up out of bed. You know what I mean? And uh, so if you're in that field and you're a nurse, that's high honor. I think there's something heroic about that because the pay is not like some of the things that we celebrate. You know what I mean? And teachers who are pouring their lives into students who many times nowadays, they don't, many people don't care about learning. And some people have devoted their lives to passing on knowledge to the next generation so they could do great things. And so that uh, is not always appreciated, and the salary doesn't go with it that we give to our celebrities who can hit a ball a really long ways. Like that's that's kind of sad, and it shows something about our culture. I don't want to I don't want you to think I'm bitter. I'm not. But the third thing I think is that um, that a real hero is someone who they do what is good. They do what is good, okay? They do what matters, and it's a little bit different from that. They do what's good. A real hero is about character and not just talent. You, you know the difference? Like you can have a lot of talent, but you can be a real jerk. And this is talking about people who... When they're heroic, they, they aim to do what's good. Their character reflects what is good. It's not just talent. They're good. And uh, what they are is the goodness. It's not just what they do. They are good. And we celebrate heroes in our world by remembering their birthdays, um, you know, thinking about their birthdays, and you can find out all of that if you want to get real into it. We don't really know when it comes to Jesus, we don't know when his birthday is. Do you know that? I've heard in the spring for certain reasons. I heard just last night from someone who said that the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Suggests that um, that these are the flocks that are coming in to eat after the harvest. They're eating up all the stubble. And so the the boundaries of the fields have to be guarded by shepherds who make sure the flock doesn't get into the wrong field. And so that suggests the harvest time in the fall. So Jesus might have been born in the fall. It doesn't exactly matter that we know his exact birthday. We celebrate his coming. Come on, are you with me? Like I'm not bothered by the fact that some people say, well, that's, that's Saturnalia. I don't care. If we've replaced a pagan holiday with a good one, that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? So whatever it is, we want to celebrate during this season the coming of Christ because that matters. He matters to this world. I'd like you to look at a particular verse from this section that we read here, and we're going we're gonna to spend most of our time dealing with it. And it's verse 25, or excuse me, verse 21. When uh, the angel announces to Joseph in a dream that, that a virgin uh, will give birth to a child, and you'll call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I'd like you to notice that first thing there, that you're to call his name, you're to call him by the name Jesus, Jesus. Did you know um, if you go back into a Greek translation of the Old Testament 
and you look up the passages that deal with Joshua, that Joshua's name and Jesus' name are spelled exactly the same? Did you know that essentially the name is God or Yahweh is salvation? Yahweh is salvation. And so the reason the name Jesus is important is that it says something about God's nature. When we, we think about Jesus, who is a hero to us, he is the hero, the ultimate hero to us, we recognize that his name says something about the nature of God and that he's there for that particular reason, that he's there to save. Saving describes God's way. Okay? Uh, somebody said, I think it was um, one of Heather's friends, Katrina, she she was sharing on a Wednesday night one time, and she said something that's kind of kind of stuck to stuck with me is that Jesus is the Savior, and He's really good at it. He's really good at it. Okay, He's really good at saving people. He knows how to do it. Aren't you glad for that? That He found you, and He's and the right words were said to you. And well, let's give credit to the Holy Spirit for that. That He knew how to woo you and draw you and bring you into relationship with the Father through Him. You found him trustworthy, and before we start patting ourselves on the back, let's understand that God's, it takes God's grace even for us to come. Come on, right? That no one can come except that they're called. And so we understand that, but he's a savior, and saving describes God's way. He's a saving God. He's a, you could substitute here the word rescuing. These are the same kinds of words, that he's a rescuing God. He's a delivering God, and these are synonyms for God's nature, and this is what Jesus was born for. And so when you say the name of Jesus, anytime, if, look, uh, we shouldn't be saying the name of Jesus is a swear word, right? Doesn't it grate at you a little bit when people say, say his name in a way that takes for granted his character and his nature and his goodness and all that you know of him and love of him? That ought to grate on us, but but let's consider this, too, that when his name is said, every time it's announcing the salvation of God. Okay? I'm not suggesting that you can say the name of God um, in vain without, with impunity. There, there's a consequence to that. And one of, it, one of the consequences directly is that it's a hardening of the heart that takes place. Because we're not acknowledging who he is, but... When we call upon him, or we call upon the name of Jesus, we're recognizing that God is a saving God. And Jesus, in Jesus, there is hope of salvation and the fulfillment of God's plan to save. I think probably the people of Jesus' day would have understood this in a particular way, because I grew up around a lot of altar calls, you know, where people are, talked about getting saved and being saved and experiencing salvation and and. You know, if you grow up in church, you kind of know what the gist of that language is. But if you don't, it can seem kind of strange and foreign to you. What, is, what does it mean to be saved? saved? Saved from what? What does that mean? And I think that um, when, you, when people in Jesus' day heard that he will save his people from their sins, I think they heard it like this, that we have sinned against God and he sent discipline and judgment in the form of foreign armies coming in. Okay. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all the the, Mes the uh, Medo-Persians, all of them, and that when he forgives, and he will save, and by saving, he will forgive our sins, and he will take away our oppressor. Okay. 
So I think people would have seen it that way, and they would have seen it really compressed. The idea of salvation would have been really compressed. Do you know that it's true that God will put down every foe and everyone that stands against you, uh, especially the enemy of our soul, the devil, that he will be done away with? Do you know that? Not immediately, not when you say yes to Jesus right now. And he didn't accomplish all of that in his first coming, but we have a defeated foe in some sense. And that is a promise that's made to us, that in forgiveness, he will, he will set down every foe. And the final enemy to be, to be defeated will be death. Okay, So all of these are things that he's taking care of. And so we should understand, and there's kind of a, there's a couple different pictures that are metaphors for us of salvation. Redemption may be a better way to, to say that. Two pictures of redemption. And, and Joe referred to some of them when he shared this morning. Um, one of them is that Christ came and he took the wrath of God upon himself that was due to us. Did you know that? He stood in our place and he took the full weight of the consequence of our sin, the eternal consequence of our sin, and the immediate consequence of our sin. So we, we still bear some of that. I'll talk about that in a second. But he took that upon himself. And so that he who was innocent stood guilty as he died upon the cross. He bore our sins to the tree. Okay, are you with me on that? Okay, good, because if we, we're not, let's spend some time there. But if we are, let's move on to the next one. Because the other metaphor is a purchasing back that he does. He redeemed us. He purchased us back. And from what? From the consequences of sin, from bondage to the enemy. So when Christ died in our place, he paid the ransom price so that we could go free. Okay? And, and this uh, especially goes back way to the Eastern Church, is that they believed that we were, we were deeply in bondage to Satan, and that the, they thought that the primary picture of the atonement was that we needed to be released from the devil. Okay, I'm not suggesting it's either or. I think it's both. That we both need to be, we need to be forgiven of our sins because the wrath of God has been placed upon Christ rather than us. And we also need to be purchased back from the enemy. We've been redeemed. Look at Colossians. We've been redeemed from that bondage so that we could be free to God. Come on, isn't that good to know that it's both? It's not either or, it's both. God's done an amazing thing in Christ. So he has, I've kind of got ahead of myself here, but the name of Jesus is salvation. He has saved us, okay? So they would have pictured that in a very literal sense, we understand that the salvation that we have is salvation from our sins and those eternal consequences of it and deliverance from the enemy of our souls, okay? So that's the next part here. Notice it says in verse 21, his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I'm not, I'm going to leave his people till the next uh, part of this because of uh, an emphasis here, but um, from their sins. Notice that. Here, sins is not only sin themselves. Like, he's not saving us from simply a, a consequence of sin or the fact that we, we did sin. But this uh, word for sin here is referring to sin guilt. That when we sin, the action doesn't just pass into the past, but we bear the guilt of that from that moment on until somebody comes to remove it. Okay. Do you know the Bible talks about people piling up their sins till the day of judgment? We sometimes hear people say that time heals all wounds. And we want to make a quick jump 
to say time heals all sins. Time doesn't heal sins. The guilt of sin remains unless it's taken away. And so as we sin, they pile up and they await the day of judgment so that we will give an account for every sin that we've committed. But if that sin has been placed upon Christ, come on, this ought to be exciting. That has been forgiven and the pile has been placed upon Jesus and he's forgiven us so that now we can be free of that and we can be seen as righteous in Christ before God. That's good news. Amen. So when it talks about our sins, that he will save us from our sins, it's not just that we have sinned, but the consequences, the guilt that goes along with our sin and, and their consequences. And I want to be very clear when I let you know that there are some natural consequences that may remain despite the fact that you're forgiven. Come on, do you understand what I mean by that? Like, we may have done something foolish in our past that we still bear natural consequences to that today. Maybe something that has affected us in our body. Maybe something that has affected us in our relationships. And that carries on despite the fact that we're forgiven. Now, let's not mistake that for the fact that because those consequences remain, we're still under God's disfavor. If you're in grace, listen, grace equals favor. God has granted you favor, and he can't at the same time be mad at you while he's smiling upon you. Do you remember in the Old Testament it says the, this is how you're to bless the children of Israel. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. You know, to have the face shine upon you, if you want a modern-day equivalent, it's God smiling at you. It's God looking at you in a favorable way because of Christ. And that's what, that's what the cross has done is it's allowed us who were enemies, rightfully so, enemies of God because of our rebellion. It's his world. He has the right to set the rules, right? Like if you're a parent, you know, it's my house. I can set the rules. Kids might fight against it, but look, grow up, get your own house. You can set your rules, right? And we've, we need to understand that that this is God's world, and so if we've rebelled against him, that it's right, his judgment's concerning us are right, that we're rebels. But he can forgive the rebel, and he can make, it not, make us not only friends, but part of the family. Folks, this is good stuff. I hope you're hearing it. Not because I'm saying it, but because this is true, and it's liberating to understand this is what Christ came to do, is that he will save people from their sins and Yes, there are natural consequences, but the eternal consequences of sins, they are removed in such a way that like eternal alienation from God, that's no longer the thing. You've been if you've been restored in Christ, you're you're in the family. Okay? And then get this, the natural consequences of our sin one day will be removed too. Like if you're dealing with struggles in your body because of a past life that you had, do you know that he will heal all of our wounds? He'll wipe every tear from our eyes? That's a promise for eternity. Now, we still may have to bear some of the consequences, and there may be several reasons for that, and I'm not going to try to articulate all of those, but there are reasons for it. But he heals all things. He gives healing to the nations we read in Revelation. And so that's part of it, is that this is the promise that we're seeing come to Joseph, that He's to be called Jesus. God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. 
and he will save people from their sins. I want you to notice this next part, and this is actually prior to what we just read. It's still in verse 21. He will save whose people? His people from their sins. His, his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. His, that's the part I want to emphasize. I wanted to mention this one last because I think it's often overlooked as uh, important as it is. It's the key to all of this. Some people treat salvation as if it's somehow separated from Christ. Like there's Christ and then there's this thing that he's going to do and it's separate over here. And You can almost get at that like a contractual thing without really having to have much interaction with Jesus. And I want you to see that those who are saved are his people. Okay? They live in relationship with him. They're relying upon him. They're his his people. Um, I think I've said that a lot. Have I have I said that already? They're his people. And so some people treat it as if it's separated. He gives the gift of salvation and then it becomes something distinct from him as if we've entered into this contractual agreement and we can each now go our own way and the contract will be fulfilled. Okay, and I think there's something not quite right about this way of thinking. Salvation is in the person of Christ. Okay, so this is one of the reasons why it's so glorious that he came, is that he came to be our salvation. Okay, it's in the person of Christ. He who has the Son has life. Right? They go together. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Right? If anyone remains in me, if anyone is disconnected from me, they'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. Okay, so salvation is in Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, salvation is through Christ. You search the Scriptures and you think that in them you have life, but they testify of me. So just notice here that when it says he will save his people, this is a possessive. Literally in Greek, it says this, the people of him. He will save the people of him, himself, his people. These are those who've entrusted him with themselves, trusted their past, their present, their future. Uh, We're the people who follow the Jesus way. We live in Christ. We live through Christ. We live because of Christ. To him, we give the ultimate allegiance. He is the hero because without him, there's no salvation. Okay? He's broken a breach through the wall, and he's brought us out. Okay? The, the dangerous idea is of this detached Savior and a contractual salvation that doesn't include remaining in him. I'm not disparaging, however, that covenant looks like a contract. It does look like a contract, but the difference is that with a contract, you can sign the contract and go your different ways. But with a covenant, it's relational and you remain together. You see the difference? That we're covenanting together that we are joined in this venture. And God says, through Christ, you have salvation and there's no other way. And so that's the difference. It seems to me that a contract can be cold and detached legal agreement, but a covenant is relational warmness and closeness with the one who's providing what he's given. And he's the only one that could do what he did. Okay. What challenges me in all of this is, is this, because here I am, and, you, and you're with me in this, we're living 2,000 years after the fact, and the facts have been recorded and written down. 
and we've encountered Jesus and we know him. I think probably that's true of most of us here. We know Jesus and we, we want to walk with him. And what challenges me about this is how ready people were to worship him and put their hope in him when it was only a promise. Okay? Jesus, what, the part we're reading right now, it, Jesus, if we go back from the perspective of Joseph, Jesus hasn't been born yet. He's only a promise. I hesitate to say only. It sounds strange to me uh, to say only a promise when it's from God, but I'm trying to make a point, you see, that it hasn't, it hasn't yet come to fulfillment. Now it's come to fulfillment. And what's strange is that we still find it hard to believe in him and we hesitate to worship him after the fact. How great a faith must Abraham have had? He doesn't have our Bible. And he went and he was ready to sacrifice his son for God. We have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have the knowledge of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his life, everything that he is. Would we dare to match our faith with Abraham's faith? It ought to challenge us because I think if we follow all the evidence and everything that we've been granted, it ought to tell us that we should live lives of great faith. And we can do that because God will allow us to and he'll help us to do it. But often we balk and we we hesitate. But think about the Magi. These are Gentiles. They saw a star and they came to worship a king. Man, I don't know what's going on with all of that. But these guys came from a long way off, and they're like, we saw a star. We know it's related to a king. Are these astrologers? Who are they? Gentiles? They're probably not kings. They're probably some kind of nobility. But they came a long way, and they they asked the people that were nearby, how do we go and worship him? And they told him, and then they go and they offer their gifts, their precious gifts. Probably these gifts uh, help to sustain the family as they were traveling and going through life as Jesus grew. And then the shepherds, they were just told a few minutes earlier. Maybe because they're in Bethlehem, they're familiar with the story. Bethlehem seemed to be a hotbed for spirituality even during the time of the judges when everybody was going super crazy and losing their minds about God and about religious things. Bethlehem seemed to be kind of a hotbed. So maybe... Maybe these shepherds wandering around there, the echoes have come down to them, and they know we're to be expecting one that's going to come from this area. And they're told by the angels, and probably that's enough to get anybody going, right, that uh, the, uh, the Messiah will be born, and you're to go worship him and then tell everybody what you hear about. What about the two elders in the temple? These, these people were looking forward. They'd waited their whole lives, especially it says of Simeon that he waited for his whole, his whole life for the consolation of Israel. And this, this one really has been stirring on me lately is that he just, he just sees the Messiah and he's ready to go to heaven. Like, Lord, uh, let your servant depart in peace. I've seen what my heart has longed for. And he was seeing it all by faith. Isn't that amazing? Like they're ready to put their whole lives on this, and they don't even know the whole story. It ought to inspire us to worship, and then Mary and Elizabeth as well. Mary's just like, well, this is going to ruin my reputation, but be it unto me even as you've spoken. 
and she's ready to go with all of her heart into God's wonderful and troublesome plan. Isn't that amazing? I'm equally challenged by who's not there. How about you? Those who had power to lose by Jesus being born, Herod, and other people who just dismiss dismissive. I think probably the high priests and his family, they didn't really want the... They don't want, they want the religion without the involvement of real, the real move of God or even God himself. They want to go through the motions and use it for religious and financial gain. And that's another sermon some other time. And then what about those who knew the scriptures best? The wise men come and they ask Herod, where, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And Herod's, Herod doesn't know. And he says, Let's call in the theologians and the Bible scholars. They'll know. And they did. And you know what the Bible scholars did? They quoted Micah chapter 5, which is a prophecy that comes 700 years before Jesus, that he will be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men go to Bethlehem, and the religious leaders go home. Isn't that kind of interesting that they didn't go and like at least check it out like let's get let's see if this is the thing no nope, they didn't care about that I, for whatever reason i suspect they were taking a wait and see attitude and this probably has to do with the fact that there had been several messiah figures who had come and gone and some of them had died uh, very ignoble deaths like because they tried to be the revolutionary they thought the messiah should be but they weren't looking at the right kinds of things and so Sometimes when you hear promise after promise, I mean, we live in a world kind of like that. Like four out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste. That's got to be the best. And then we're disappointed to find out that was just sloganeering, you know. And probably of all people, we've gotten more cynical than many because we've heard all the, all the promises and all the ads and all the campaign promises and it's just easy to get jaded about things. And I wonder if these Bible scholars were that way. So I'm going to give them a little bit of a pass on that, that they've seen Messiah types come before. And so let's wait and see what happens. may have been a safe approach that didn't involve too much risk. But they didn't go worship at the end of the day. And these kings came way out of the, I mean, how far would they have had to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Two, three, five miles? How far is it? It's not far. It's within just a little bit of walking distance. And these guys have traveled from who knows how far. Uh, a good If they came from the Ur area, it's 900 miles that they traveled to come to see Jesus. And somebody wouldn't travel two miles. This reminds me of a story I'll tell quickly. One time after church, we ran into a lady at a restaurant. And uh, she, go, she went to our church. This wasn't here. This was when I was a youth pastor. And she lived on the other side of town. And here's the church. Here's the restaurant, and we ran into her at the restaurant, and my brother, who's the pastor, said to her, oh, we missed you at church, and she said, Pastor, I just can't make it out these days. She'd gone farther to get to the restaurant, and it's just in case it didn't resonate yet. She went farther than the church to get to where she was going to eat food. Anyway, um, some people will make an excuse not to make a move, you know what I mean? And these... Uh, these uh, people who didn't go were certainly there. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's a list of names. When I was in Bible college, I was working at a, um, a thrifty 
auto rental, and I watched the cars and drove the shuttle bus and stuff. And there was a lady that worked there, and she was really troubled with this Isaiah 6 passage. And I think she was trying to kind of nail me on it that, look, the Bible can't be true because it says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And all we know him by is Jesus. And so I was like, well, these are... These are messianic titles is what you need to know. And so Isaiah 6, there's a list of these names. I'm going to talk a little bit about that on Wednesday if you're interested. Um, There was a custom in the Middle East of giving what's called throne names. Listen, throne names. Okay, A throne name is uh, a name that's given with the intention. It's not necessarily the main name, but it's a name given with the intention that the king receiving these names would live up to these names. Okay, so... We're going to call you this. For example, uh, Solomon was named Solomon, which means, anybody know? Prince of Peace or King of Peace. Okay, And then he also had another name, Jedithan. Okay, and that related to his kingly reign. So there are throne names that were given again and again. Another throne name for Jesus is Emmanuel. Why is he not called Emmanuel? It's a throne name that his reign will bring God to us in a particular way, okay? So as he rules and reigns, he brings God near to us. One of the names, and this was that custom, one of the names there in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he will be called, and it mentions a couple, and then it says mighty God. He'll be called mighty God, okay? This This is a throne name given for this future king that will come. Once again, We haven't quite gotten there yet historically, but already they're looking forward to this day when Messiah will come. He will be called Mighty God. And you'll see this this, um, juxtaposition between gentleness and fierceness in Jesus, okay? Sometimes we paint him in a way that makes it look like Jesus is a hippie, right? But you realize there's a fierce side to him as well. He's the, when you read about him in Revelation, he will tread the winepress of his fury. He's got eyes that glow like fire. I mean, there's something scary about that if you think about it. But you don't have to be scared of him because he's, the, he's, he's like a lamb. His way of conquering was through laying down his life. But it says he will be called Mighty God. And this uh, in Hebrew is El Gabor, El Gabor, okay, and Gabor can be an adjective. If it's an adjective, it's mighty. If it's a noun, it's hero. Okay, so this come full circle here. As a noun, it's hero. So this could be a, a double noun, hero God. He will be called the hero God. Why? Because it, he is mighty, but he will affect through his leadership victory. Come on, isn't that wonderful to know? He's the hero that we've been looking for. Micah chapter 5, verse 4 says that his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Has that been fulfilled? Here we are. As far as we're concerned from Jerusalem, this is the ends of the earth. And his greatness has reached here. Prophecy fulfilled. And it will continue to do so because there's more to it than that. Come on. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's something we look forward to in the future, where not only is his name reached this far, but it will be on every person's lips. 
Okay, Whether they do it in regret because they didn't do it before they had time to repent or whether they do it like we did, we have. We've confessed his name before, but his name will be known to the ends of the earth. And maybe we've grown tired of the idea of heroes because of disappointment. We've had presidents that have failed us and politicians that have failed us and parents that have failed us and, um, you know, celebrities who've done crazy things and we just can get real jaded about all of these things. And 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 we failed ourselves. A lot of times we see failure in others because we see failure in ourselves. If we're, if we're honest about it, let's not project all of the um, blame on other people. We have to own our part. Come on. Amen? Help me to know that we're, we're hearing that. But we, we get tired of these things, and maybe we're weary of all that celebrating requires of us. And this has been really stirring in my heart this year at Christmas time that what Christ has done is not worthy of less celebration but more. Okay? Sometimes we're like, I just don't want to get out the stuff. Fine. I'm not talking about putting up Christmas trees and lighting up your house. I'm talking about really getting into the fact that Jesus came and acknowledging that and honoring it and celebrating it. Even if you say, okay, it's not December 25th, fine. But we ought to be rejoicing the fact that it's being talked about, that Jesus came to die for our sins. It's been stirring in me. And I'm not making a case to, like I said, to celebrate in the American style. Let me quickly go to this second part here, and this is shorter, is uh, how we celebrate matters. Who we celebrate matters. How we celebrate matters. Just as we celebrate, uh, who we celebrate matters, it also matters how. And, you know, seldom do things live up to their hype. Uh, In just a few weeks, there's going to be a Super Bowl. I love to pick on this. Uh, it's the biggest single media event in North America. Do you know that? The Super Bowl. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, there will be a game between uh, highly paid athletes, and there will be entertainers there. I don't know who. They probably already have announced it, and you may know. Uh, the average ticket last year uh, for a Super Bowl seat was $8,000. Do you know that? Isn't that kind of grotesque? The minimum was 5000 I mean, maybe you could find somebody that you could, couldn't go and you could squeeze it out for less. But um, some tickets cost as much as 36000 to go and sit in a box somewhere. For a 30-second commercial during the game, it costs $7 million. And at the end of it all, it'll get talked about for a couple days. And then people will go back to their lives and it was just a kid's game being played by men. Right? At the end of the day, that's what that is. And I pick on the Super Bowl a lot, but I like to watch it. And so my motives here aren't to tear down football because I think it's ridiculous. I like it a lot. But I could see an earlier version of myself saying, it's not just a game, it's really important. But this is an example of something small made to look big. Okay, and consider this. 115 million people watched the Super Bowl. 1.5 million people watched the World Cup final. That's big, isn't it? Okay. Christ's birth is not that. It's not something that's a game made to look big. It's the real deal that sometimes is made to look small in people's eyes. In fact, the the interesting thing, he is he's our hero, but oftentimes 
uh, we see even in the Bible that his birth was kind of downplayed. In fact, Jesus came into a world that in, in kind of an understated way, not everyone was aware that the Messiah was being born, and not everyone who knew celebrated it. I saw a book at the thrift store the other day, and I ended up buying it, The Atheist's Guide to Christmas. And I brought it with me. And just so you could know that it's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> you believe in God, but you not, might not believe that book exists. It does. And I read a couple chapters in it, and I looked through some others. And to me, it seemed really bleak, for one, even though they were trying to be funny and uh, really clever. And they couldn't get on the same page with what to do about Christmas. So it's a compilation of a bunch of different renowned atheists, mostly in England, that um, they wanted to talk about Christmas for some reason, and they couldn't all get on the same page. One guy uh, let's, says, let's not celebrate the birth of Jesus. Let's celebrate the birth of the universe. Let's celebrate the Big Bang. That's what he thinks. And then another person talked about how to deal with the pressure from fanatical believers. Uh, your grandma might ask you to go to church, and how are you going to deal with it? And it gives you the uh, um, multiple choice questions about how to answer this, if you're going to be a super extreme jerky atheist or if you just want to, you're kind of being too quiet, and then there's one in the middle. And so this person thinks that maybe you should, you should, handle things gently, but be firm on your beliefs. And then a third person um, talks about how to enjoy the holiday without getting into all that religious stuff. You can go through all that, but don't get into the religious stuff. And then someone else, how to avoid it altogether. Okay, all of these are articles with people with shared belief, and they can't seem to get on the same page about what to do about Christmas. And there's a strange irony in this book. No evidence was given only assertions made about why there's no God in their opinion. They act as if all that we have for a foundation is myth layered upon lie, which I, which I expect that they would say, but I would also expect to give a convincing reason why we should reject the witness of the Gospels, but they never do. Instead, they set up a ridiculous caricature of Christianity, and then they ridicule it. And it's not intended to be a serious critique. Rather, it's atheists trying to de-evangelize the world while having a little fun doing it, okay? And how do you deal with Christmas? And here's the irony. Without a creator, you realize, and this goes back a little bit to last week, that nothing has meaning except the meaning that we give to it. If we're not created, all of this is some random accident. The only thing that matters is what we think matters, not what any God says matters, okay? And then it goes even worse than that. You know, as Christmas has no meaning, effort has no meaning, life has no meaning, and honest atheists will tell you all that, and when the universe is done with, none of it will matter anyway. Nobody will be around to hear the story or tell the story. It won't matter, and I'm convinced that we have something to celebrate, something of substance, that the Savior did come into the world. He came into history to be our hero, not not to be, not with the express intention to be our hero, but to do the heroic thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, but if you have, you'll remember that Sean Penn is up on in the Himalayas and he's looking for a snow leopard. And then one comes past and there's an opportunity to take a picture and he decides not to take it. 
And he makes this comment that's kind of stuck with me. He says, beautiful things don't try to get noticed. You ever thought about that? Really beautiful things don't try to get noticed. And it's not that Jesus was trying to get noticed. He was trying to do the thing that would save us. And for that, he's our hero, and he deserves our honor. To celebrate means to honor. And so we celebrate him. It seems to me impossible to make too big of a deal about the birth of Jesus. I don't know that we can make too big of a deal of it. Maybe, maybe you can think of some lunatic extreme, some lunatic fringe thing that we might do that would go too far. But have we gotten close to that yet? Some of the people I suspect that are blowing up their yards with all kinds of Christmas decorations, I wonder if they've even got a relationship with God. And if they did, what would that yard look like? Thought about that? Okay, I just don't know that we can make too big of a deal as we celebrate redemption that we've received. We don't have to celebrate like the world does, but there is something even there that people would celebrate a holiday that goes back to the birth of Jesus is notable. And I know we feel it with all kinds of other things, but the real reason is never far away, and it's always creeping in on our, on our secular ways. And the truth of the matter only needs a little space to break through. And we have a response, and that's to honor him. Christ's coming matters. He's the hero of history. His birth is the most significant birth of any baby ever born. Our birthday is not even close in comparison to the fact that he was born. Are you with me? We make big deals about our birthdays, some of us, right? It's not even close to the fact that Jesus was born. He's worthy of our worship. Let's not go smaller. Let's go bigger. Not for the reason others do and maybe not in the way that others do, but let's be excited about what the birth of Christ means to us. You know, um, as I was saying, we don't have to celebrate in the way others. Tinsel doesn't make Christmas. Whatever happened to tinsel anyway? I don't see that on trees anymore, thankfully. That's that little stringy stuff that kind of annoying, and if you get it near your nose, it makes you sneeze and things like that. But uh, I wanted to challenge us today to recognize Christ as our hero. As I said, I've been around a, a lot of church, and I've been around a lot of altar calls. And I'm not always sure that the way I've heard the gospel uh, presented gave people the right understanding of salvation. Come get your uh, for free Get your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven. What's wrong with that? I think what's wrong with that is it's not really the main point. The main point of salvation is being reconciled to God through Jesus. Come on. Streets of gold, bonus. Right? Getting to see grandma and grandpa again someday, bonus. That's not the main thing. The main thing is we shall see the king. Amen? And that's good to know. Being saved, getting saved, it's about knowing Christ. I think the proper response today, number one, is to trust him. Okay, Why don't we stand and we'll close this out. I thought we'd give him a run for the money downstairs, but I talked too long. I think the first response to a hero like this is that we trust him. Okay, You might, you might at this moment realize, I'm not really trusting the Lord the way that I should. If he's if he's this great, he's worthy of trust. And 
He's not just a hero of history who died and went into a grave somewhere and you go and visit the memorial. He's a risen king. And because he's risen, uh, he leads. And because he leads, we can follow. And that's the second thing is that we trust him. We follow him. Following him is more than just walking in line behind him. It is living as Jesus lived, not in a ridiculous way. You understand. Like, we don't have to wear the clothes that Middle Easterners wore during that time. But to live like Jesus is is this, is that those who are trusting him must walk as Jesus walked. It means our lives reflect his life. Our love reflects his kind of love. Our words reflect him. Our holiness and goodness is likened to his holiness because he grants it to us. And then the third thing is that we should celebrate him. Okay? That's true of all of us. We need to celebrate the Lord. Again, I don't care if you got have a Christmas tree in your house or you like singing Christmas carols or whatever. Let's celebrate the fact that our hero has come and it affects our salvation and it matters to the world. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I'd like to invite you today, if you'd like to spend a few moments at the altar before we go, Maybe you would say, Lord, I need to trust you more with my life. I've been living my own thing, been doing my own thing. I've been valuing the hype and the noise that's surrounding things that don't matter very much. And I've been minimizing you. And I want to repent of that, and I want to acknowledge you and trust you with my life. Maybe you've never said yes to Christ. Today you can do that and simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. All the benefits of salvation, most of all, relationship with God is restored through Christ. He's our peace. and He's brought us in. He's all the things that are said of him and his rule and reign accomplishes those things. Second would be, to follow him. Maybe you've said, I'm trusting in him. I believe he's the greatest person ever been born. But I've been doing my own thing, going my own way, not living the way that I'm supposed to. Folks, that reminds me of something I felt the Spirit wanted me to say. If we're following Christ and we're trying to honor him, we don't honor him in this holiday by going and getting drunk and sleeping around. Come on, do you hear what I'm saying? That our lives have to reflect the beauty of his holiness if we're following him. You hear what I'm saying is that following him, trusting him means going God's way. And doing it God's God's way. Finally, celebrating Him. Maybe you need to think about what does that look like in your life? What does that mean for us to do it more? To celebrate His coming more, to adore Him more, to show Him greater honor for Him coming. Does that mean a personal witness to somebody who doesn't know Him? Does that mean talking about it more with the kids and making Christ more central to Christmas than he has been? Does it mean uh, maybe getting, uh, doing the inconvenient thing and somehow serving others as a response to Christ's coming? I don't know what that looks like, but let's celebrate him. Amen.
Father, touch in each of these areas, Lord, and in any others that haven't been covered. I pray, God, you would uh, put your seal upon what's said here today and what's true. We pray that, God, that you would uh, sear that in our heart so that it might be known and lived and challenge us where we need it today by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.